if I were to um, pinpoint you down and say, I want you to think of an, a pivotal moment in your life. All of us have them. There is not one of us who are adults that could not say that there is some point in our life that was a pivotal moment, and there's probably many of them, probably many of them, a decision that you had to make. Do I make this decision? Do I go down this path? Do I choose this, this job? What is it that would make the most sense? Now, but I would think that most of us try to do our best to be best informed when we have those pivotal moments. We want to have wisdom in making those decisions because we want what's right. We want it to be a good, pivotal decision so that it turns out good. The disciples were at a pivotal point in their life. Now, you might say, yeah, but didn't they have a pivotal moment three years earlier than they're at right now? And the answer is yes. I would say to you, and as we go along in this sermon and looking at this text, that that first pivotal moment, though it was life-changing, was not as pivotal, was not a great, as great a decision that they had to make as the one that they make in this text. And hopefully as we go along this morning, you will see that. You see, the first pivotal moment for them was when Jesus came to the shore and he called them. Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they left their homes, and in many cases left their families, and they left their jobs, and they followed Jesus. They followed him for three years. They listened to him preach. They listened to him teach. They saw the miracles, the signs, all that was taking place in the ministry. And... They didn't understand everything that was going on. They didn't even understand everything that God in Jesus Christ was telling them. But during this time, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. He believed. Wasn't sure about all things, but he believed. But now... In this moment, we're past the resurrection. Jesus is alive. And now, they're alone. This is a pivotal moment. They're wondering what's next. Yes, Jesus appeared for them and to them in the upper room. He gathered that evening after the morning resurrection. He gathered with them in that upper room after they had been told by Mary Magdalene that he was alive and they didn't believe. And the people, the Cleopas and his wife, probably his wife, that went to Emmaus and Jesus appeared to them on the road and he opened their eyes and they went back and told what was going on, that they had seen the risen Savior and they didn't believe. 
And now Jesus appears to them for the first time in the upper room, and Thomas isn't with them. And so, after Jesus leaves, that first appearance to the disciples, Thomas comes in and, ah, nah, y'all are just blowing smoke. I'm not going to believe it unless I can put my hand in his very wounds. Eight days later. Eight days later. Now, this is interesting because we don't know how long you know maybe during the ministry maybe when he sent out the 70 they were gone for eight days from Jesus but the likelihood is that this is one of the longest periods of time in the last three years that they have been away from the Lord and so he's appeared to them on the Lord's day resurrection day the day that he arose Eight days later, for the second time, he appears to the disciples. And now Thomas is present. Okay, Thomas, stick your finger here. Stick your hand here. You believe now, bud? You believe because you have seen. Blessed is he who believes. Who has not seen. That's us. Those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he leaves again. This is his second appearance to the disciples. And and, and we don't know exactly how long it has been since his second appearance to the time that we get to this text that we're fixing to read. We do know that Jesus, post-resurrection, was on earth for 40 days before his ascension. And so the disciples are alone. They do not know exactly when Jesus is going to appear next. They have some decisions to make, some pivotal decisions to make. And you've got to wonder, do they remember any of it? Is there, is there anything that is on their hearts and minds as they go to Galilee, to the mountain? If you have your scriptures and you want to follow along, I'm in John, the 21st chapter, and I'm going to read the first 14 verses. They will be on the screen, but there is nothing like having uh, Scripture in your hand, whether it's electronic or a hard copy, and there's always Bibles on the back table there if you need to pick up one. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and the two other, two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and they got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. 
But when the day was now at breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. And so they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When, Peter, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, dragging the nets full of fish. So when they got to the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the nets to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the nets were not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This was now the third time that Jesus had manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. I pray, Father, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds this morning for what you would hold for us through this, your holy word. We pray this in your name. Amen. After these things is what John says to us. Now, what are these things? Now, it goes back to what has just happened. If you go back to chapter 20 and you look at uh, these, these closing moments of Friday and Saturday, and now in chapter 20, the resurrection as John proclaims that Jesus is alive. He has been raised from the dead. He has witnesses to the fact. And... Jesus commands the disciples to go to Galilee. We know this because it's recorded in Matthew 28.10, in Mark 14.28, and in Mark 16.7. But evidently, they did not travel together going to Galilee because there are only seven of them in this story. Maybe the other four of them, you know there's 11, Judas is out of the picture currently, and, and uh, we know we're not going to go into what happened to Peter this morning, I mean to uh, Judas this morning is out of the uh, picture, and so Peter is leading these seven to Galilee, to the Sea of Tiberias. Now, we also know this as the Sea of Galilee, as it was commonly called, or Shinnereth, or Gensent, but as John is writing his gospel, it was commonly called the Sea of Tiberias. And so these seven have 
gone. Now, John tells us five of the names. Peter, James and John, Nathaniel, and Thomas. Doesn't give us the other two disciples' names that are with them. But most commentators say that it was probably Andrew and Philip because they were so tightly close to Peter, James, and John. And so these were probably the seven. We know five of the seven that were there. It is interesting, though, they are not on the mountain. This is our first hint that something was kind of not right, and it's because of their location. They are at the shore. They are not on the mountaintop. So we know, again, that they were told to go. I want to read for you Matthew 28 and beginning with verse 16. So the first part of chapter 28 deals with the resurrection. And then we come to verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. You remember I gave you some verses, addresses earlier, where they were told after the resurrection to go to the mountain in Galilee. And here, Matthew tells us this is what they did. This is, they went to the mountain where it was designated. And when, he saw, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them were doubtful. Could it have been, just plausible, could it have been the four of the eleven who weren't in our text by the shore, who had breakfast with Jesus along the shore? Maybe it was those four. There were still some that had doubts. In verse 18, And Jesus came up and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, there are those that mistakenly, and I want you to get this this morning, at least this part, there are those that mistakenly think that this is at the ascension, and it is not. This is in Galilee. This is not on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is where Jesus was when he ascended. You can read that in Acts 1 if you want to read that today. And the disciples went from the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem, and we know that they waited for Pentecost. But this particular text is where they had been commanded to go to Galilee and be on the mountain and wait. Now, before Matthew records, but the eleven proceeded to Galilee and went to the mountain and God had designated, in that time, seven of them didn't listen. Or at least they went, but they decided that they had waited long enough. It may have been Peter's decision, maybe all of them, because they all went fishing, but Peter at least started with, you know what, guys? We've been on this mountain long enough. We're going down to the shore, and I'm going fishing. And the guys said, you know what? We're going to go with you. And so they went down to the shore 
to go fishing. There is a boat there. Now, it is interesting. Do you, do you think that just somehow there is a mysterious boat that just appeared? Most commentators say no. In fact, Peter knew exactly where the boat would be. In fact, many believe that it was probably Peter's boat or a family boat. Actually, Peter went to where a place that he knew. He went to where the place was comfortable. He went to the place that was common to him. He knew where the boat would be, and he went fishing. They climbed into the boat, and they went fishing. I don't know, maybe we could give Peter a little bit of slack. I mean, Jesus has appeared to him twice, both times in the upper room. Yes, Jesus had given them a command to go to the mountain and and to wait there. Yes, Jesus had given them a command while he was with them that they would be his testimony, that his church would be built on their testimony. Shouldn't they remember But since the resurrection, yes, Jesus has appeared twice, but he's not given them any instruction. He has not said, this is what I I, I want you to do. The instruction came from the women that said, Jesus said, go to Galilee and wait for me on the mountain. This is the only instruction that has been given. And so you've got to wonder if Peter is thinking, what's next? What is Jesus doing Is he going to appear again? Well, the women said he would. He would meet us here. But he goes down and he goes fishing. Something that's common, familiar. Maybe he didn't intend for it to be that I'm going back to the profession that I once had. I'm done with this. I'm done with this spiritual stuff. I'm done with this church stuff. You know, Jesus, I'm done with this. I don't think that. But certainly, he had some inadequate feelings about the spiritual ministry that he had been called to, that they had been called to. They were successful fishermen. He knew that they could be successful. And they went out at night when they knew that the fish normally would be biting And unfortunately, they caught nothing. Professional fishermen, nothing. They had provided for their families before, nothing. Spent all night, nothing. And dawn comes. I wonder how we, with the command that Jesus gives us to wait or to go or to be exactly in the location or doing the things that he calls us to do. How well do we listen to the commands that God gives us? I want you to go here and I want you to do this. No, God, I can't. I don't have time. I want you to meet this person, and I want you to shepherd this person. I want you to mentor this person. I want you to speak about me to this person. No, God, I don't have the capability of sharing a testimony. I have found that when the Holy Spirit lays someone on your heart and mine, 
is for a cause and a purpose. He has a reason for that. And you better check on them. This week, God laid somebody on my heart, and I shot them an email. I had been thinking about them all day long, and I shot them an email. And um, I knew that in that moment, God wanted me to check up and check in on them. I can't tell you the number of times that that has happened to me. When I was pastoring in Wilmington, God laid uh, a name on my heart, and I picked up the phone and uh, called the number, and on the other end of the line, uh, she picked up, and I said, hey, and before I could say anything else, she said, how did you know? I said, how did I know what? She said, I just got a call that John had been injured at work, and the Rescue squad is taking him to the hospital, and I'm fixing to leave. And I said, I'll meet you there. That's not me. That's just a God thing. But when God lays somebody on your heart or something on your heart, don't ignore it. Those commands come through the power of the Holy Spirit that are in us. God sometimes wants us to pray for others. We may not know the reason. It is for his purpose and his will. And we need to be in tune to the Holy Spirit. We need to listen to what God is telling us. And, you know, I said maybe we need to give the disciples a break. We don't have an excuse. There is no excuse, folks. God has given us his entire revelation. We know the end of the story. We have all the information that God has given us. It is holy. It is right. It is perfect. Wouldn't we listen to him when he has given us his very spirit? But too often, I think what we do is similar to what the disciples did. We go to the comfortable, we go to the known, we go to what we want because we're afraid of the other circumstances or what might happen. Often Christians encounter Jesus, they spend time with Jesus, and life happens and all of a sudden the circumstances around us, we feel alone or abandoned or as the song as we were singing, we feel forsaken and we go to the wrong place. We cling on to the wrong things. We don't claim the power of the Holy Spirit. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about at Pentecost the power of the Holy Spirit and what that means to us to have this indwelling. The disciples went fishing. They caught nothing. It was a fruitless night. Dawn had come. They had nothing at all to show for it. They're about 100 yards. If you don't know what to make of that, 100 yards is a football field. If you've ever been to a football game at high school or college or a professional it's 100 yards long. That's about how far they were offshore. And they see someone on shore, and they're not sure. 
They're not exactly sure who it is. They do not recognize the person, but they hear the person call out to them. And it's interesting because the phrasing that Jesus uses. Jesus says to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? Now that's interesting because most would say, did you catch anything? But he already anticipates that this is going to be a no answer. You did not catch anything, did you? And the answer is no. We did not catch anything. The other interesting word here is children. Because Jesus identifies these seven that are fishing as his children. John's heart had to be racing. To hear the voice, to hear this person on the shore referring to them as his children. Jesus says to them, cast the nets on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. He did not say, cast the nets on the right side of the boat and maybe you will find a catch. Why don't you just try it and see if this works? I know you didn't catch anything all night, but maybe if you would just try the other side of the boat, you might find something. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you cast the nets on the right side of the boat, you will find a catch. But Lord, we're professional fishermen. We've been fishing all night. There's no fish around us on the right, the left. In fact, the best time to fish is at night. Is this what the disciples say? No. In fact, John tells us they immediately cast their nets on the right side of the boat and the the catch was such that the nets were full of large fish. When you listen to Jesus, things work out for his purpose. Now hear me, church. I did not say that when you listen to Jesus that all of your wishes work out the way you want them to. That's not what I said. What I said was when you listen to Jesus. When you listen to Jesus, his purposes and his will will work out for his glory. We have to trust. We have to trust that if we lean into God, if we lean into Jesus and what the Spirit is telling us, that God has this worked out. God knows the right thing for us to do, the purpose, that pivotal piece for us when we lean into his purposes. In other words, the great old hymn, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I read an article this week and um, it was about Sir Anthony Hopkins. Many of you know him, a great actor, uh, from England, and uh, Hopkins was an alcoholic and an atheist for much of his life. He was at a point in his life where he 
just could not deal with the alcoholism, and he sought help, and he went to an AA meeting. And as he began to go, people began to, and if any of you have been a part of that or uh, know about AA meetings, um, my name is Marty, and I'm alcoholic. And then if you're the first time, you get to tell a little bit about why and what's going on in your life. And they began to work with you. And there was this lady in the meeting that he kept going to, and she knew that he was an atheist because he would bring it up when somebody would say, well, this about God or this about Jesus or Jesus has helped me here. And finally, she looked at him when he had kind of renounced that for the umpteenth time, and she said, Mr. Hopkins, why don't you just trust in God? And he thought about that question. He had been an atheist all his life. Why don't you just trust in God? He said, you know, I decided, you know, I've never given God a chance. I've never thought about trusting in God or putting my trust in God. And he said, I said a prayer that night and said, God, you know, if you are there, I want to put my trust in you. And he said from that prayer on, he never again had the desire to drink a drop. He was being interviewed by John Stewart, late night host, in an interview. And John had heard that he had become a Christian. And kind of in that kind of snooty, antagonist kind of way said, Anthony, you, you really, you really don't believe in God, right? And he looked at John and said, absolutely. He's my Lord. And you put your trust in God, for his will and his purposes, something happens to us. Now, between the words of Jesus and this miracle catch, John absolutely heard something because he turns to Peter and says, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Always marvel at what comes next. I've been fishing a lot of times. I've been in a boat. I've never stripped fishing. I didn't think that was a good idea with a hook. I, I just didn't. But Peter is stripped for work, John says. And instead of just diving in and swimming to shore, he puts on his clothes and dives in and swims to shore. I just think that's backwards. But who am I to say? He's the professional fisherman. I... It, John gives us the story here. And so he swims to shore. Everybody else comes in. They're dragging these nets full. And as they come to shore, there's a fire there. John doesn't tell us how Jesus got the charcoal fire, had fish of his own, has bread of his own. John doesn't give that detail. But here is Jesus, the risen Savior. He's on shore. He calls them and he has prepared breakfast for them. Bring some of what you've got. Peter runs out, and he brings the nets in. 
And John tells us not only are they large fish, but he gives us the number, 153. That's a perfect number. Now, it's not a perfect number in the sight of 7 and 12 and 140, all these things that we know perfect numbers in Scripture. 153 is not necessarily a perfect number in Scripture, but it's the perfect number because it's the perfect number that God had them catch. And God gives us the detail. And why would John give us 153? Because John is a fisherman. And when they went fishing, they counted their fish. They counted their catch. Why? Because they kept some for themselves and their family, and they had to know how many they had to sell. That's how they made money. So naturally, they would count. We've got this great catch. And John says, there's 153 fish. Great, go get some of those fish and come. Lord's invitation to them to come to breakfast in verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast with me. This was his call to full fellowship for them. Full fellowship. Maybe because they had felt guilty about their disobedience of going off of the mountain and not waiting. Maybe it's because of their guiltiness of, okay, kind of looks like we're going back to our former trade of fishing. Maybe it was the awe of the spiritual, was, uh, supernatural miracle catch. Maybe it was the reason of being in the presence of the risen Savior they're standing right in front of him. None of them ask who it is because John tells us, we didn't ask who you are because they knew it was the Lord. They knew it was the Lord and this was his third appearance to them, John tells us. This was a pivotal moment. This was their pivotal moment. The encounter with Jesus on the shore of Galilee changed their focus. We do not have in Scripture where they ever strayed again, where they ever did anything other than what God had told them to. From that point forward, they obeyed. Their focus had changed, and it became a, one of those pivotal moments in their life. After this, they received the commission. They went back to Jerusalem. We know that on the 40th day that Jesus appeared to them on the Mount of Olives. And, and here, Jesus challenges them, go into Jerusalem. You wait for me. He didn't say, wait for me 10 days. But he said, you go and you pray and you wait. Did they go somewhere else? No, they went to the upper room and they prayed. And they stayed, this time for 10 days, because 50 days after the resurrection comes Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Their focus was different. The 120 in the upper room that day received power from the Lord, and they went out to carry this great commission message of who Jesus Christ was. But I believe it started on the shore that day as they listened to Jesus, as they are around that fire with him. You say, well, 
wait a minute, you didn't finish John's gospel when Jesus calls Peter aside. No, I didn't. And that is a great piece for Peter. But I want us to focus on the disciples this morning. So often, we, we, we just need to hear that these disciples, it was not just Peter, it was not just Paul, but they all gave their life, except for John, who's writing, for Jesus. They were martyred for the faith. In fact, as after Pentecost, when, when they would go out and they would pl- proclaim the gospel, it was hostile to a point where they would make the upper loop of a fish And if the person that they were talking to would just gently make the bottom half of the fish to finish that sign of the fish, they knew that they were safe. They carried this message of the gospel out. Never again did these 11, when you add Matthias to the count, and you add out of those 108 in the upper room, and you add to those Paul, and you add to that Silas and others that came to faith, the gospel began to be spread. Here's the question I want to leave you with this morning, the question that we all have to answer as believers In my belief in Jesus, have I come to a pivotal moment in my life when I am no longer focused on the world, but focused on him? You have to answer that question. I can't answer it for you. I can see your deeds. I can see your example. But ultimately, you have to answer that question. Have I come to the place where knowing the Lord Jesus Christ knowing he gave his life for me, knowing he is the risen Lord, knowing he is the only way to eternal life, do I place him above everything else? Do I place him above my wife, my children, my grandchildren? Do I place Jesus above my job, money, vices? Do I place Jesus above me? We live in a society that tells us there should not be anything above me. I deserve society, and Satan tells us. Is he? You see, we serve a jealous God. If you don't believe that, let me give you some addresses. I'm not going to read the passages. Exodus 20, 15. Exodus 34, 14. Deuteronomy 6, 15. Nahum 1, 2. Those are just a few that tell us we serve a jealous God. He demands to be first. And in knowing Jesus as Lord and Jesus knowing us, his will and blessing will be perfect. His will and blessing will be perfect. And we have to make him first. I would have loved to have been standing there on the shore that morning as Jesus calls his disciples and invites them, bring what you have and come join me. 
bring what you have and come join me. You see, that's exactly what he tells us. You bring what you have and you come join me. And let's see what happens. When you make me first and you bring what I have given you, your gifts and your graces, you come join me. And let's watch and see what happens. Jesus has offered each of us that invitation. Will it be easy? No, we live in a fallen world. Will it be hard? Yes. There are times that it would be even hostile to us. But the, remain, the, the reminder is, is that Jesus is present. He is here, and he walks with us. This body will break down. We will have broken hearts for those that are around us, family and friends. There are times that we will feel marginalized. There are times that we will feel less than. But I will tell you, there is nothing like knowing Jesus. Nothing. Knowing Jesus and making him Lord over your life will be the greatest decision that you've ever made. There is no other that's greater. And if you do not know Jesus, I implore you to surrender your life to him. If you know him, I still implore you to surrender your life to him. Because what he is telling you is, knowing that it was the Lord, come to me, Jesus says. Bring what you have. And see what happens. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are and what you have done through Jesus, the Christ, our Savior. Father, we thank you for the invitation to come along with you, that to make you first, to live into your will and your purpose. And Father, if we would just do that, if we would just do that, oh, what blessings would flow, how you would be honored and glorified in our speech, in our deeds, in all that we do. You have given us your word. You have told us the end of the story. We're going to gain victory and be with you. Shouldn't we tell that? Shouldn't we proclaim it? Oh, Father, please use us. Let us focus on you. We know that you are the Lord. May we live it. We pray this in your son's name, Lord. Amen.